Green Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio. And um, for our presenters, um, um, the presenters we have today are myself, Jacob, and Chloe. Morning. Happy Friday. So, um, we have a pretty packed program today. We actually have um, quite a number of different kind of guests. Um, there's actually going to be a, a strike today led by Geelong Library Workers, and so we're going to be having um, the Deputy Secretary, um, Michelle Jackson, from the ASU Rectorian and Tasmanian branch, which is ASU being the Australian Services Union, to give a bit of an overview of the strike and um, what the workers are, are, are demanding. And then, of course, we'll be speaking, um, we'll be having um, different, um, we'll be speaking to Amin, um, who is a recently released Medivac refugee about the current ongoing hunger strike led by refugees at the MITRE detention centre, which was something we talked about last week. And then we have Jonathan Lockhart, um, who recently wrote an article for Green Left on this whole kind of right-wing push um, against critical um, race fury. And so we're going to be having a bit of discussion with Jonathan um, to go through that. But before we um, before um, we go to the rest of the program, I want to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. I like to um, pay our respect to elders past and present and acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land and that sovereignty was never ceded. All right, so um, for the first part, um, for the start of the program, I just wanted to go over, I guess, some of the um, some of the things that I guess have kind of sort of happened, I guess, in the past week in terms of notable and kind of prominent kind of news stories. And I guess to probably start off, probably one of the things that has kind of dominated the media for like the past week, well, in the context of Australia, is there has been uh, a number of COVID-19 outbreaks um, happening in different parts of um, Australia, everywhere except Victoria, which is, which is funny because um, Victoria was probably the first um, to have an outbreak which led to a two-week lockdown. Now we're sort of in a situation where the new kind of Delta variant is sort of circulating with the community outside um, in different parts of um, Australia, um, with the worst probably affected being New South Wales, but it's also there is, um, there is cases of local community transmission in um, places such as uh, Queen, um, Queensland, um, Western Australia, although to a lesser extent, um, and then South Australia. And of course, what has kind of happened in response is there's been all these, 
all um all different kind of lockdowns and restrictions in imposed in response. But I guess one of the sort of interesting kind of things to kind of observe um about what's what's kind of happening I think from um is there is this whole there's a lot of kind of political kind of discussion and a lot of criticism raised against um the Morrison government um for the poor vaccine rollout in fact um Australia is probably one of the um countries that is probably the most behind compared to the rest of the world in terms in I guess compared to the rest of the global north in terms of um the vac- uh, its vaccine distribution and it has been under kind of a lot of scrutiny kind of from the mainstream media and then there has also been i think a sort of interesting kind of element to this kind of discussion around the different sort of lockdowns that have um, been imposed or are uh, being implemented within the different parts of Australia outside Victoria, because generally they they one of the things that we've kind of discussed on our program in the past has been there has been this kind of right wing kind of push against um against the, the the Andrews government for having kind of very strict support for for um lockdowns in imposed in response to the COVID nineteen pandemic. So kind of every sort of media sort of news cycle, there's always like criticism kind of thrown um for the Victorian government um for implementing a kind of lockdown. But interestingly enough, the Murdoch for the Murdoch media, um this has um there has um, when it comes to kind of New South Wales, the kind of tune that they're singing is a lot different um, from when they um, from when they because basically a lot of the kind of mainstream um, news outlets, the corporate kind of media outlets, have had this kind of position of being opposed to kind of lockdowns, and even um, the ABC has sort of um, adopted has sort of presented sort of positions that almost sort of try to play kind of both kind of sides in this kind of debate around lockdowns. Now, I mean. When saying that, I'm not necessarily saying that uh, the Victorian government, in terms of its implementation of um, of um, handling the COVID-19 pandemic, is all perfect. Um, but I think you know that there is clearly this sort of. I think it's clearly observed that there's this sort of right-wing kind of push and discourse around lockdowns, and criticisms um, are definitely being kind of unfairly. There's a clearly a double standard kind of going on in terms of the media, in terms of how they have um, treated kind of Victoria in the past, in terms of its handling of the COVID-19 pandemic versus other states, um, specifically New South Wales, which is led, um, which is actually primarily led by a liberal state government. So I think that's, um, and then of course there's been other kind of interesting sort of elements, um, and announcements that have sort of happened in the past. And actually for kind of a reminder for our listeners, there's a bit of it's a bit vague on what's actually going on, and sort of I did a bit of reading uh, about it. So there was recently um, an announcement by the government that anyone under the age of 60 can now get the AstraZeneca um, vaccine. Now this is a bit confusing because basically the vaccine rollout has sort of been done in sort of kind of phases. So basically, going it started off with. Um, the most runnable kind of health groups, or I might be getting the order wrong, but I mean, 
it started off with vulnerable health groups, um, the elderly over 70, then it kind of gradually pro- um, progressed towards rolling out it to um, to those who are women in their, in their 60s, then it kind of progressed to now going to people in their 50s, and of course during the Victorian um, um, COVID-19 lockdown, it was then um, it was then that those who are under um, those who are around over 40 were now then considered included in part of the right. Now it's apparently um, in response to kind of like the COVID um, in response to the kind of COVID-19 um, outbreaks in different parts, I guess, of the state. It appears that anyone under the age of 40 can now get the AstraZeneca. And now what that kind of means is apparently if you call your GP, it is actually, and if you're under 40, it is actually potentially possible to secure a, a, a appointment for your vaccine. But the fact that I'm I'm actually sort of saying this and actually confused about what is kind of happening actually just says everything about how poor uh, the government's rollout is um, with regards to the COVID-19 vaccine. But I definitely, my personal point of view is that I think people should get vaccinated. Uh, I think if you're able to get the COVID-19 vaccine, I think um, you definitely should. And I think, you know, there has been some, you know, there has been, you know, a lot of kind of news coverage about the AstraZeneca and it's kind of potential kind of side effects around the blood clots. But I feel um, based on kind of like some of the available kind of evidence I've read from medical health experts, the actual risk of blood, blood clots is actually very astronomically kind of low. Uh, in fact, my reading is the benefits of the AstraZeneca um, COVID-19 vaccine outweigh the risks, but obviously it's obviously all up to people to make informed kind of medical decisions based on their kind of situation. Um, but yeah, that's sort of just my sort of reading. And I think, you know, I encourage people, I, I think that it's my point of view is I think it's actually in terms of defeating the COVID-19 pandemic globally. I actually think despite the fact that while, you know, Australia doesn't seem to be in a situation where it's been badly impacted by COVID-19 compared to say the United States and UK, I still think it's important. And I think that the, um, um, the vaccine right, um, proceeds as quickly as possible. Um, because really, it is in the interest of actually defeating the global pandemic that actually the majority of people that do get vaccinated. So I think that's, um, but I think, yeah, there's lots to criticise about the government's right. There's lots to kind of criticise about also the government's kind of messaging around the AstraZeneca and especially, and especially since there's actually some debate amongst sort of medical experts, um, on whether it is actually recommended that, um, that they give the AstraZeneca to those under 40s. But, I mean, I'm sort of of the opinion based on what I've sort of read from different experts that, you know, it's probably the right move. But at the same time, the Morrison government has been so incompetent and so inconsistent in terms of their messaging uh, that I just, um, it's all unreally unclear. And, of course, there's a lot of politics kind of happening with, you know, the Labor government trying to make their sort of own criticisms uh, for points, political score points and, and so on. But, um, Chloe, I haven't given you a chance to say anything. Do you have any oh, other no, comments? Okay. I was enjoying listening to your advice, <laughs> Jacob, but... Um yeah, I just find it funny all these headlines coming out in the news about, you know, don't don't take advice from Scott Morrison and you know, I guess we should also mention um, you know, it's really despicable um the federal government's attempts to you know, blame um, you know, the 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 aged um care vaccination program, you know, shift the, you know, blame onto aged care workers. Um the United Workers Union put out a, a really good statement um 
you know, just talking about how disgraceful it is that aged care workers were being dragged into this argument about whether vaccination should be made um, mandatory. And, yeah, I think now it is... Um, I think there is like a new staff vaccine that is, you know, there there is actually a mandate that will, you know, be, um, yeah, it, it's it's actually going to be mandated that they all have to take the vaccination. But, um, you know, like unions are saying, this won't really do much to solve, you know, the problems that have actually been caused by the government's complete um, failure in rolling out this vaccination program. So, yeah, it's just a, I just think it's really, you know, and other people, other listeners may think that it's just, you know, it's just blame shifting and it is confusing um, the, the messaging around, you know, whether we should get vaccinated or not um, and, you know, what age, what vaccinations to take. So yeah, I'm just yeah, yeah. Enough, you know, um, because I'm Bobby listens. Bobby, I probably gave a, I gave her a kind of very sort of pro sort of vaccination message, and I'm definitely very pro vaccination. Yeah. But I mean, this whole thing about the mandatory kind of vaccination kind of thing, I mean, I actually disagree with that as a government policy. I think good public health policy actually relies on pe- on consent. And I think people making an informed and kind of rational kind of choice on the basis of getting evidence. And obviously, you know, there is obviously a current of sort of anti-vaxxer sort of conspiracy sort of theories developing around there. But I actually think that is actually very exaggerated, the actual extent that it reflects the opinion of the average person. And I think that the government, um, the government sort of making um, vaccinations mandatory for aged care workers is actually just a way of distracting from their actual failures of implementing proper kind of public health policy. And it's just a way of putting the blame on individuals and not the actual government departments who are actually the ones who are responsible for um, delivering on the vaccine. And I just don't think that a, f- a small kind of marginal group of people are actually influencing the rate by which people are taking the vaccine, the government actually has all the responsibility for primarily most of the responsibility in terms of the vaccine rates and rollouts. And I think if the vaccine rollout rates is not not that high within um, Australia, which is actually explained by actually pure supply issues, the reason why um, the vaccine rollout has been low is actually because of lack of supply, which is actually the government's responsibility. But then the other actual problem is the fact that actually so many people don't even know that you can get the vaccine, which goes hand in hand with the government's own sort of confused kind of messaging. Anyway, we're kind of getting a bit out of time for this because we've got to go to our kind of first kind of interview for the program. I'm just going to go play um, a quick announcement. You are listening to Green Left Radio. 3CR Radiothon. Show your support during June 2021. The union movement stands in solidarity with students and all young people taking action today. And we stand in solidarity with you for two reasons. Firstly, because we believe in the rights of young people to have a say in our democracy. Do not let the conservative media try to silence you. Be loud and proud As we know in the union movement, when we raise our voices together, we cannot be silenced. Secondly, we stand in solidarity as your struggle is our struggle too. Climate change is union business. 3CR Radiothon, community-powered radio. To donate, call 03-9419-8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 
All right. You're listening to um, Green Left Radio. And for our first interview of, of the program, um, we're going to be interviewing um, Deputy Secretary of the ASU, Victoria and Tasmania Division, Michelle Jackson. Basically, um, Geelong Library workers are going on strike today. And in fact, they're going to actually be having an action, I think, from three o'clock um, outside the Geelong Library. Um, so if you happen to be listening to Geelong, I definitely kind of encourage you to get there. So, but anyway, we'll go start finding out about um, this uh, strike from um, Michelle. Good morning, Michelle. Yes, good morning, Jacob. So, Michelle, um, can you give us, I guess, a bit of background um, for the Geelong library workers who are kind of going on strike and what has kind of led to this kind of moment? Um, in fact, I've, I first actually heard about the potential of a strike from a fellow Geelong library um, worker delegate um, who I'm in contact with um, as early, I think, as May. So what can you tell us about the background to this? Okay, so... Um Yes, our um, members, as you've said, are going on strike this afternoon because they are extremely frustrated with management. Um, This agreement expired a year ago now and these workers have not had a pay increase for two years. Um, Management has been very slow at coming to the table and putting reasonable offers on the table, so um, that's why they're taking this action today. And can you tell us about some of the? Um, can you tell us, I guess, about some of the some of these? Um, how, oh, sorry, um, how some how some of the kind of issues kind of compared to kind of other kind of library kind of services? Because I mean, I've heard sort of different kind of reports on the kind of conditions of library workers um, with some cost cutting by different sort of libraries, um, and also yeah. And, and some of these kind of cost cuttings has been kind of justified um, by the COVID-19 pandemic. And I guess has that sort of also influenced, been a sort of influence on the, on the kind of management in terms of their, deci- in terms of, um, their decisions to not um, in- give any reasonable increase to workers at the Geelong Library? Yeah, look, I think there's no doubt that they've um, exploited COVID for their own benefit. It's certainly made it a lot uh, more difficult to bargain during that period with, um, you know, libraries being shut down at various times and um, people not physically in the workplace. Um, but I will point out that this library corporation, their behaviour during COVID was um, one of the worst. Um, most libraries kept their staff fully employed and gave them other work that they could do when the libraries weren't physically open, but Geelong Regional Libraries cut the shift of more than 50 casual staff, um, just cut them off. Uh, They had no pay, and um, their workmates, our union members, actually um, ran a GoFundMe uh, just so these workers would have some money to live on. So, um, you know, that's some of the background leading into the negotiations and why they've been so stalled. Um, But the um, Geelong Regional Library, um, they've been voted the best public library in Victoria six years in a row in an annual survey of public libraries. And um, yet when it comes to pay rates, they're sitting at 45th out of 49 public libraries. 
<clears throat> so they are one of the biggest and the best library services, yet they are one of the worst paid library services. And on top of that, management has been trying to cut conditions. Um, we have been able to pull some of that back through um, through our industrial actions, but they are still trying to cut things. They're still trying to do things like um, increase the spread of hours that normal hours can be worked at, uh, which in effect reduces penalty rates. And I guess the kind of next question, and this is um, something that you'll possibly be across as a union kind of secretary, but I'm kind of interested in a bit of, um, I guess, a bit of kind of information and data on the kind of rate of unionisation in general um, within the library kind of workforce. And I guess I want to kind of talk going back, going back to this um, this particular struggle the kind of lead-up, I guess, to this kind of strike, has there been, I guess, a notable kind of increase in the rates of unionisation at the Geelong Library um, leading into this kind of strike and how has it compared to kind of like other kind of work, um, work, um, similar work for um, places um, across, across, um, across Victoria in, in the library sector? Yeah, so, um, look, this particular library service, we've got uh, fantastic union delegates at this library service and, you know, membership has been increasing out there, I'd say, for the last three or four years. Um, but, you know, it definitely over this period, um, we are in a very strong position. We've got very good union density, membership density out there and... Um, that means that, you know, our, we're going to have um, really effective action at this library service. Hmm. And going into kind of the um, kind of the action, um, can you give us, I guess, the kind of details of um, the strike? Because this strike is going to be something that the community, um, the greater community within Geelong, is going to be able to kind of join um, because there is a rally planned um, to kind of support and stand in solidarity with these um, Geelong library workers who are taking industrial action. Yes, yes. So we we have a barbecue and we have. Um we have a, a rally and we've already, our, again, through our active union delegates, we've also got some um, other ASU members within the Geelong area that will be joining in <clears throat> and supporting these workers and also some union members from other unions who will also be coming along to support these workers. But we would welcome any members of the public who would also like to come down and um, come down and have a solidarity sausage and support these workers as well. Okay. And um, do you have any, I guess, final comments um, to make and also, I mean, how people can support the workers, but obviously the way people can support the workers is by going to the rally um, um, today if you live in the Geelong area, but if there's kind of other ways, um, feel free to kind of mention it. So, um, look, I think the main the main way at the moment is that you can support the workers is just to come along today to the rally. But any time you are at the at the library, you know, over the next few weeks, um, please let you, the workers know that you support them. It means a lot to them. But um, what I would like to say with management is, uh, you know, they actually made money during COVID by um, cutting shifts of casuals in particular uh, they didn't really lose any revenue <clears throat> and 
Also, some of their costs would have decreased during uh, the lockdown. So they have the money to give these workers a decent pay increase. They're just choosing not to. Yeah. All right. Well, um, thank you very much, um, Michelle. Um, we get all solidarity um, to those um, to the your Geelong, um, to the Geelong Library workers um, who are taking industrial action today. And yes, we very much hope um, that they win everything um, that they're kind of demanding. And you know, we'll definitely be covering any kind of updates um, for our future program and what comes out of um, the industrial action. But yes, thank you very much, Michelle, for being on our program. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks, Jacob. All right. Um, so that was um, Michelle Jackson, um, who is a um, who is the assistant, um, the deputy secretary of the A of the um, ASU Victorian and Tasmania branch, and we just had a discussion with her and an interview about um, the Geelong Library workers who are currently taking industrial action today, as a result of prolonged negotiations with management who have um, cut. Um, working conditions and, and, and so on, and basically, yeah, demanding better, um, better working conditions for Geelong library workers, which is actually, as kind of Michelle, um, kind of, um, noted, is one of the most highly kind of ranked, um, library services in Victoria, but it, but it has the worst pay, um, for, for its staff. All right, so I'm just going to go play um, a quick announcement, and then we might we'll move on to the next part of our program. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Three CR, always bringing you the latest union news. They're coming after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates. The big push from businesses. They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for. So there's tens of thousands of jobs gone, contracted out, to sham contracting arrangements. On 8.55am and on the web, 3cr.org.au. From every corner of the land, womankind are Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. All right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio. Um, Now, just to give, um, just to have a bit of a breather um, before our kind of next kind of um, news kind of discussion. I thought I'd use a bit of an opportunity to play a bit of a song um, on Green Left Radio. Um, we're going to play Breathe In, Breathe Out by Filma Plum. For good 
wouldn't come back now even if I could Cause I'm a big girl now All on my own Won't you please tell mum and dad I'm not coming home
All right. Yeah, that was um, Breathe In, Breathe Out by Thelma Plum. You're listening to Green Left Radio on 8.55 a.m. It is 7.32 a.m. Now, for the next kind of story, news kind of story I kind of wanted to cover is something that has um, just happened kind of yesterday. And this is going to be, this is um, um, basically um, in the past, um, in yesterday, the former um, sec- um, Secretary of Defence, um, um, Donald Rumsfeld, um, had pa- has passed away at the age of so I'm just getting over at the age of 88. And I guess the significance, I guess, of this is that Donald Rumsfeld was the U.S. Defense Secretary during, during, and, um, during George W., um, President George W. Bush's, um, term. And essentially he was the main architect of the Iraq, um, on the war on Iraq. And, I think there's kind of, a, I guess, a lot to kind of say, uh, I guess, about this. And that is, I think, you know, I think the legacy of what um, Donald um, Rumsfeld has rep- um, represents and what he is essentially re- responsible for is pretty abhorrent. In fact, the war on uh, Iraq, um, you know, was a terrible, you know, um, inc- event um, that led to the deaths of more than 200,000 people. And of course, these actions were primarily kind of motivated. Um, the war was primarily motivated by the interest of imperialist nations like the United States, i.e. Their, their own kind of imperialist kind of interests. And I think, you know, there's going to be there's going to be all these sort of mainstream sort of media kind of um, the mainstream kind of media and the corporate media is going to kind of lionize um, this man and um, and his death going on about his kind of positive kind of legacy and, and so on. But I think as kind of socialists and left wing people, we should actually reject that mm-hmm. and, and, you know, argue very strongly um, that, you know, this is a man that is has a powerful man who was essentially responsible for the deaths of more than 200,000 people through a terrible kind of war that was not justified under kind of any kind of circumstances. And in fact, 3CR and Green Left were both at the forefront of opposing um, the, the war on Iraq and, of course, also the war on Afghanistan. And I think, you know, part of kind of like um, the United States kind of interests is um, in kind of lionising these um, sort of reprehensible kind of figures, these architects of war, um, because the United States has an interest in justifying its uh, its um, imperialist sort of wars uh, abroad and its invasions of um, countries. And I think I think it even goes. It's even um, Donald Rumsfeld um, legacy. It goes. I think even worse um, than just simply being the architect of the war in Iraq. He was also responsible for um, a lot of the terrible kind of tortures that was carried out by U.S. Uh, military of um, um, so-called um, terrorist suspects in Guantanamo Bay and and so on. And in fact, he was um, literally a, like the architect of a lot of those and responsible for a lot of the the tortures and abuses that happened um, as a result of the war on terror that was um, pushed by George W. Bush. And um, and I think you know, there's I think we we it's it's we should de- definitely be very questioning and critical of the legacy of what this kind of man represents. And I think you know, it's 
I think it poses, I guess, even more kind of importance um, in the context of all this sort of rhetoric about kind of war on China. And of course, Free CR and Green Left, you know, we have to we have to basically be building, um, be part of building an anti kind of war movement um, against kind of imperialist interventions uh, in the Middle East um, and and so on. So yeah, I might open up. Does um, Chloe have any kind of comments you wanted to make? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, following on from what you said, Jacob, yeah, it's, um, it is important to remember, you know, all the countless victims, um, uh, in the wake of Rumfield's death, you know, um, victims that were prey to his lies about weapons of mass destruction. Um, you know, so many were tortured under his watch in places like Guantanamo Bay. Um, yeah, and I guess U- U.S. warmongers like him should be tried for, well, should have been tried for war crimes. You know, he used the 2001 terrorist attacks to launch, you know, what he called the regime change in the Middle East, um, you know, with George Bush Jr. at the helm of it. Um, yeah, and his death can even be seen as a tragedy in the sense that he died before he could be put on trial for crimes against humanity. Um, and many people like him will never be held to account. So that's, you know, like you said, it's really important that as socialists we continue to build an anti-war um, movement. And also I think, you know, um, one of the kind of reasons um, that, you know, people like Donald Rumsfeld, and I mean I'll also extend that to people who are, um, who are still alive today, like the likes of George W. Bush and Harry Kissinger, um, you know, the reason why these powerful people are never held responsible for their crimes is because, you know, we live in a kind of capitalist kind of system that actually props up these um, these people. In fact, the, the idea of the, the way the capitalist system works is it basically means that these are the people who serve the interests of capitalists uh, in power because really war is one of the many sort of byproducts of capitalist kind of exploitation and especially in wars based on imperialist interest. And so I think, you know, it does raise, I guess, the importance of building a left-wing alternative, a, a socialist movement um, that can actually seek to challenge and overthrow the kind of capitalist kind of system to ensure that wars like these can never happen again. So I think, yeah, that's, um, that's I think, what all I can really say. And I guess one sort of funny sort of comment I just want to sort of add, this is a bit random, but there was... It's um, it was re- it's re- very insensitive, but um, um, people might be familiar. People are pop- listeners are probably familiar with the video game Call of Duty, and now Call of Duty is a bit is a bit um is like you know very sort of pro sort of Western chauvinist kind of game. I mean, you essentially play as U.S. soldiers, you know, killing terrorists or other sort of, um enemies and so on it's like a it's like a war first person kind of war uh, war based kind of first person shooter now for the latest um call of duty game the developer or the publisher more um um preferably um activision decided that oh we um um decided to kind of honor donald romsfield's mm-hmm. death within the video game itself um call, um which was call of duty um cold war and um, within the video game, on, in the multiplayer, um, you earn experience points um, to level up and to get new weapons and 
new equipment and all sorts of things, basically. You get rewards in the game for doing well in multiplayer and gaining experience points. And they decided within that um, that online component that um, a good way of honouring Donald Rumsfeld's death, and in fact they even made out that this was this said that they would be offering double experience points on the weekend if people play Call of Duty during the weekend. So it, I think yeah, it is pretty um, pretty re- reprehensible. I mean, regardless of um, you know the the kind of um, you know, what of the political content of Call of Duty, which I think is pretty right wing overall. This is definitely completely kind of insensitive. And also, it's sort of interesting enough, it kind of plays into a sort of interesting thing about, um, video game, the video game industry. Cause, you know, a lot of people, including myself, play video games and, but there's also a very sort of right wing kind of base that supports um that is sort of part of the kind of video game kind of community and to me um to be honest this seems to basically be a way of you know activision sort of pitching themselves to the right um and you know there's all these kind of there's all these kind of comments about from the right about how you know you can't talk about feminism in video games you can't make feminist critiques you can't make critiques of of um video games for their representation issues you can't criticize video games for what their ideology can present politically because you know video games are just about fun and you know core of duty is supposedly defended as this game that is not political and yet you see the publisher deliberately making a right-wing kind of political kind of decision in terms of their kind of presentation of their of the video game so i think it's yeah it's a bit it's a it was I was sort of shocked when I read the story. It was so random. It's almost like you know, salute the immortalized him, a, a warmonger in this game. I hope I hope gamers are offended by this. Yeah, <laughs> I, I imagine that there's going to be a lot of backlash, um, especially within like you know, video game kind of journalist kind of press. I hope there is quite there is probably quite a lot of criticism about this. But yeah, it's definitely almost like a very kind of random kind of thing. But I think the point I sort of said is this is definitely a good sort of challenge to this idea um, that video games and kind of what they re- represent within the cultural space can't be political because really, yes, one of the biggest video game publishers in the world and Activision is one of the biggest video game publishers in the world. They make billions of dollars in profits, um, not just off Call of Duty, but all sorts of other properties um, that um, have massive um, online player bases. And they're deli- they've deliberately p- made a political decision that pitches them on the right. So, yeah, I think it's definitely it's definitely a, a, it was definitely a very it's definitely a, a, a kind of both an amusing but also a very appalling kind of um, story in that sense. Okay, well, um, I might just go play um, a quick few announcements and then. Um, We'll go on to our second interview for the program. You are listening to Green Left Radio. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. 
or call the station on 94198377. Solidarity Breakfast, your Saturday morning serving of union and working news, current events, opinion and talkback. Every Saturday, 7.30 till 9am, here on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. Did you know that each donation over $2 you make to 3CR's Radiothon is tax deductible? That means that when you're doing your tax return business, you can claim your 3CR donation as a legitimate tax deduction. To make a pledge to this year's Radiothon, call the station on 9419 or donate online at 3cr.org.au/donate. 3CR Radiothon community-powered radio. Did you know that you can pledge your support to 3CR Radiothon now and pay up later? Call the station during business hours on 94198377 and tell us what you'd like to donate and then pay your donation later. All right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio um, and... Um, we have our second interview for the program, um, Jonathan. So, yeah, good morning, Jonathan. Uh, Jacob, thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. All right, so I'm just going to go pass it on to Chloe um, to introduce you formally. Which I was just doing that as a way of testing the kind of sound, but it seems to all work perfectly. So, yeah, pass it on Thanks, to Chloe. Thanks, Jonathan. You're, you're coming in uh, loud and clear. Um yeah so, um, yeah, so just for listeners, um, we have with us this morning Jonathan Lockhart, who is a visual artist, experimental musician and activist. Uh, you can also listen to his podcast, Cry Baby Sleep. And Jonathan's coming to us from Sydney. Welcome, um, Jonathan. Uh, you recently wrote an article in Green Left addressing critical race theory and the right's latest target in the culture wars. Um, First of all, Jonathan, just for listeners who aren't familiar with that term, um, you know, also because of the deliberate um, moral panic and confusion um, that's surrounding it by um, conservative pundits, can you please just firstly tell us what critical race theory refers to and where and how it, it did originate? Uh, yeah, sure. That, that, that's not a problem. Um, so uh, critical race theory, um, it largely ends up becoming uh, what we know it as today around the uh, late 1970s, like early 1980s, through um, uh, different, um, I guess you could say, uh, legal avenues in the university through uh, Derek Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw, uh, Richard Delgado, and um, others. Um, through, through, through that, um, those early beginnings, 
um, you can kind of see what the basis of uh, critical race theory is, which is a look at uh, legal for- formalism, okay, and critiquing it and uh, jurisprudence when it comes to the law. But um, since then, it, it started to reflect different uh, social and cultural aspects of uh, race and racism. So, um, you know, uh, as a, a lot of people like tend to look towards, um, they look at uh, um, incarceration rates, uh, health rates, and these sorts of things um, end up becoming the uh, purview when we have that intersection well, when we think about uh, race, racism, and uh, jurisprudence in the law. Thanks, uh, Jonathan. That was a um, really good introduction. Um, I was wondering also if you could comment um, on the fact that undermining critical race theory promotes the idea that anti-racist work itself is um, racist against white people. Um, you know, I, I guess like why are the attacks on uh, critical race theory um, so worrying? And um, you know, you do mention in your article. Um, uh, white fragility, um, the fact that it's never spoken about as something that is violent, but rather an issue of people being anxious to talk about race. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, to to kind of also piggyback off of the uh, first question about the conservative pundits mm-hmm. and uh, along with this um, uh, critical race theory or diversity trainings and these sorts of things um, being like the work of uh, new segregation or anti-white racism, um, as I pointed out in the article, and this is me making a personal opinion um, note right here, um, in that um, a lot of this rhetoric and a lot of the ideas, I think, are being kind of uh, bundled funneled down through um, uh, through a uh, right wing or like libertarian think tanks. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of this, um, as I pointed out in the article, um, comes from uh, places like the Manhattan Institute, Hoover Institute, um, these sorts of uh, right wing, um, I guess you could say academic um, the foundations and um, largely ends up becoming an attack on, edu- uh, uh, on education and on schooling. But um, uh, because of this, yeah, as as you pointed out, like these conversations around uh, white fragility or uh, anger or rage when it comes to the intersection of race um, becomes the purview of these think tanks, and they have to demonize it, uh, for for lack of a better way to put it. Uh, thanks, thanks, Jonathan. Um, I guess I just want to move on to the anti. Um critical race theory, or we'll just call it CRT for short, anti-CRT bills, um, as part of the backlash against the Black Lives Matter protest movement that rose up following the murder of George Floyd by the police um, last year. Uh, Can we maybe discuss the, you know, the attacks? Um, I guess you did sort of mention it, um, but yeah, the attacks on CRT um, that are being led by anti-affirmative action activists, I guess he did sort of uh, address that, but if you had anything else, to yeah, add. yeah, um, um, yeah, sure, yeah, the, yeah, that's not, yeah, that's not a problem. There. There's no issue there. Um, yeah, so um, as we had stated earlier, um, a lot, a lot of this, in my uh, personal opinion, that I, yeah, so um, a lot of this kind of comes under the uh, purview, as we've seen um, over the last like uh, four to five years. These uh, these are uh, the right wing sort of like making the the universities um their home base, for lack of a better word. Um, a, a lot of uh, academics, uh, progressive academics have been pointing this out, that the uh, marriage between um, these uh, these uh, so-called um, libertarian think tanks, excuse me, and um, their presence um, amongst like uh, the collegiate staff and amongst students has become a, a sort of an issue. And it, 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 it's, 
a lot of other issues um last year kind of came to a precipice through um the uh protests around the death of George Floyd and the uh, subsequent um now as we're, as we're speaking the sentencing of um uh Derek Chauvin um uh, largely i think that these two intersections between uh the universities and students as i was saying before and the attack on education and um on the ground uh protests uh, grassroots activists um uh, coming together around issues uh, specifically as i stated earlier of like legal formalism critiquing it and race and racism um we're we're seeing that the uh the right wing that's like one of the last things that they want is giving people a robust way in order to understand these sort of social and cultural phenomena yeah just to come in um is um i just want to sort of relate it to um this is something that also relates i think to australia and also i think canada as well and i kind of want to hear your kind of comments mm. on this kind of anti crt kind of push actually links to the kind of general kind of trajectory of the right in terms of actually refusing to kind of acknowledge or the actual reality of American history, i.e. Americans' history is founded on the dispossession of Native Americans, but also founded on the slavery of African Americans. And I think I want to kind of hear your comments on how all this kind of links to this kind of general kind of culture war by the right on the acknowledging the true history of these kind of settler colonial kind of states like um, the United States. And, of course, this thing extends to what's happening in Canada and Australia as well. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, absolutely. Uh, you hit a few nails on the head there, uh, Jacob, because um, as I've been trying to make inroads about um, when it comes to this topic, one of the main things being um, uh, the largely the uh, anti-CRT, anti-affirmative action, um, et cetera, these uh, so-called activists, these right-wing activists, um, the, their big thing has been largely an attack on education. One of that is creating this sort of American exceptional, um, uh, North American exceptional, and, and also here this kind of great Australia myth and this uh, recoding and a uh, repainting of history, this constant uh, reimagining of history, um, as opposed to just even coming to the precipice of some of the animus of what may be the true fabric of what makes um, some of these societies truly tick. And as you pointed out, um, some of those, and especially in Australia's case and in Canada's case, um, <clears throat> the, that being a settler colonial genocidal pro program for lack of a better word you know what i mean we're not trying to you know what i mean lob huge stones here or anything but that's that's one of the realities of what's going on and uh, critical race theory um as i said before looks at issues that say you know what i mean around a uh, settler colonial um uh, instances of laws constitutions in the u.s we see um, it used uh, especially one of its watershed moments is the critiquing of uh, brown versus board of education um, which, you know, uh, like, like I said, led on for Plessier versus Ferguson, which gave a separate, separate but equal. And Brown versus Board of Education was like the first inroad towards, you know what I mean? The, the breaking up, the shattering of that idea in the United States. And I'm sure that there's uh, multiple, uh, multiple instances of, um, indigenous, um, uh, pushback and uh, indigenous resistance and, and those sorts of purviews as well. And one of the things that, um, this anti-CRT rhetoric does, like I said, Focusing on education is taking that robust language and that history away from uh, marginalized people. Uh, thanks, thanks, Jonathan. Um, I just want to ask maybe one more question before we wrap up the interview. Um, you, mm. you probably would have heard uh, on the 21st of June, One Nation 
Pauline Hansen received uh, coalition senators' support to pass a motion to ban and um, really reject critical race theory being taught in schools here. Um, and this mm. was raised in response to proposed changes in the national curriculum, which was announced in April, to include more accurate discussion on you know, First Nations people's experience of colonization, um, including using mm. the term invasion. Um, and earlier this year, you probably would have, um, listeners would probably have heard um, as well that the Assistant Attorney General uh, Amanda Stoker expressed, expressed a lot of um, you know, worry around um, the fact that the Australian Human Rights Commission is pursuing an anti-racism campaign, um, you know, saying that you know, they were worried about using terms like anti-racism, um, you know, saying it was too close to critical race theory. Um, would uh, you be able to sort of, you know, say what this Senate motion, you know, might mean for education in Australian schools or, you know, maybe address some of the controversies around this? Because, you know, there's no doctrine being rolled out. There are no, you know, programs in Australian universities teaching it. It's not taught in schools. So, you know, why is there, you know, fear-mongering around um, critical race theory? It's um, it's just a bit, yeah. Um, I just wanted to get your opinion on that. Yeah, sure, no problem. Um, uh, not to, to continue to beat the same horse from uh, earlier in our conversation, <laughs> but a lot of this comes down from dialogue trees and these ideas from uh, libertarian and right-wing think tanks. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, one of the big things, uh, I guess you could say, as this quote-unquote cultural import um, from the United States to here is that um, if you were to look into some of the um, underlying um, um, policies or legislation that they want to push through along with these uh, so-called sensitive word bannings and uh, re-engineering of curricula is that um, this is – the uh, purview, this is the um, the nature of free market enterprise at work here, is that um, it's a lot of uh, blackballing and uh, limiting of speech and uh, limiting of the ideas of free speech and liberalism, right? And then on the other hand, the only things that they have for you are free market solutions, you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. privatizing schools, privatizing curricula, etc. So um, well, the first thing that's, um, that comes to my mind when I think about this whole deal with uh, Pauline Hansen and the coalition, and they're not even being, uh, to my knowledge, and maybe someone can correct me here, um, there's not even a, a K through year 12 curriculum mm -hmm. in the country that would even teach anything akin to I mean, like critical race theory, we're talking about something that's like the purview of like, you know, graduate students at Stanford and Harvard. I'm not sure what Pauline Hansen's, you know what I mean? Like, like I said, it, it just seems more like a Trojan horse for people to, to just have these mad proclivities around uh, this approaching the animus around race and racism. Um, and, and as I said again, uh, what would be the solution here around or curtailing them? It seems like a lot of um, instances where the coalition would have to step in and they provide the quote-unquote uh, adequate um, curriculum for these schools, and it sounds like privatization to me. Um, uh, as far as like uh, Amanda Stoker, I saw a few things about um, her her comments and things around um, anti uh, like these anti-racism campaigns and, and things like this. And it's it's largely to, like I said, just to draw the animus away from the actual environment, which, again, like I said, is an attack on students and it's an attack on education. 
Yeah, um, well said, well put, Jonathan. It's it's just it's just really strange that you know a lot of critics against <laughs> critical uh, race um, theory seem to have absolutely no idea what it is. Um, but no anyway, clue whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, no no idea. Um, I guess we'll we'll uh, start to wrap up, um, Jonathan. Thank you so much for joining us on the show this morning. Um, did you have any sort of last um, comments that you want to finish on at all? Um. Uh. Yeah. Sure. No problem. Uh, again, thank you. Uh. Thank you guys so much. Thanks, Chloe. Thank Jacob for having me on the show this morning. I really appreciate it. Um. The struggle continues. And like I said, um. If you were actually opening up the hood on this uh so-called culture war that the right um is enacting against uh critical race theory and any other um um I guess you could say progressive theory that's going to come down the pipe, realize that the environment in which the um the fight is take uh, is taking place is where the the right wing wants to take your thoughts away from and that in this case is like um like i said blacklisting speech uh limiting the abilities and curricula of teachers and fighting students if that's from you know what i mean from any working class background Thanks so much, um, Jonathan, uh, for speaking to us today. Um, and for listeners, just that was Jonathan Lockhart speaking to us about critical race theory and the right's latest target in culture wars. And you can find his article in Green Left. Um, yeah, greenleft.org.au in the world section. So, yeah, it's, one, it's actually one of the feature articles, I think, of this week's Green Left. So mm-hmm. if you get um, a copy of this week's Green Left or just look up on a website, you can have a bit of a read, I guess, of the article. Um, I just want to kind of add just one little thing, just one little note, just listeners' kind of information because um, we're sort of talking about um, the question around the Australian curriculum. And as someone who is sort of studying and working, well, um, studying um, to be a teacher at some point, um, my knowledge of that is it's not necessarily part of the Australian curriculum that um, critical race theory is sort of part of it, but there are sort of aspects of within the curriculum, like probably related to, you know, addressing issues of student well-being and health, um, because um, there is kind of like racism is sort of like, you know, ra- racism is sort of something that is part of the curriculum. Um, so teaching children about racism or teenagers, it is actually something sort of part of the curriculum. So they are sort of things within the Australian curriculum that are sort of expired by critical race theory. Um, and of course then critical race theory is really, it's like the purview of a lot of basic sort of sociology, um, courses. But I guess one of the kind of things to kind of note is that there is a whole right wing kind of push even at universities because basically universities are sort of going towards this kind of system of putting more funding towards um um towards um the science and um engineering courses at the expense of the arts and of course the first things they kind of seem they cut is like indigenous studies mm-hmm. kind of courses and so on so that's just a bit of the a bit of a trend but i don't think it necessarily links it doesn't completely link with everything kind of the far right is pushing in fact the far right is actually just pushing more hysteria they're actually trying to make an argument that universities and the education system are more left wing than what they actually are so yeah that's just a kind of last sort of comment to sort of add just a bit of information um to that um to that to that context anyway i'll just go play um a quick announcement and then we'll probably go to the green left activist calendar you're listening to green left radio Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, 
fined or charged for breaching COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. All right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio, and it is now, I guess, time for the Green Left um, Activist um, Calendar, and so just have a number of kind of different events to kind of announce. Now, there's going to be a number of there's a number of events happening um, this um, so for today, and we're going to be. Um, doing a bit of an interview about it shortly. There's going to be a protest organised in solidarity with the hunger strikers at the Mitre Detention Centre. So that's going to be happening at 4.30am, um, 4.30pm, not am, outside the Mitre Detention Centre in Broadmeadows. And to get there, um, you have to, you have to either drive there or you can take, um, and this is something I've done before, you can go to Broadmeadows Station and take a bus and then you get off the bus and I think you have to walk like 10 to 15 minutes or something. Anyway, that's how, how you can, how you can sort of get there. Um, or alternatively, you can also do, um, what I might do, which is, um, is you can also ride, um, you can also ride uh, your bike there as well, um, from the station. But yeah. So, um, that's going to be happening, um, on Friday. The next kind of event is there's going to be a rally for peace, no war with China at, um, 10 a.m. at the Queen Victoria Market near the main car park. There's going to be, um, on Saturday, there's also going to be another event at the same time, um, Rally to Save Faulkner's Outdoor Pools at 10am outside the Faulkner Leisure Centre, 79 to 83 Jukes Road. And then on Saturday, um, July the 3rd, there's going to be a Rally to Free Palestine at 1pm at the State Library, 328 Swanson Street in the city. And then um, on Sunday, July the 4th, there's going to be a film screening, My Survival as an Aboriginal, and that's going to be happening at 2pm at the Formberry Picture House, 802 High Street, on Sunday, July the 4th. And then on Wednesday, um, 7th of July, there's going to be Mumbo Day at 12 noon at Federation Square um, in the city. And then on... Thursday, July the 8th, there's going to be a Shuvia Night, um, Kane's Toads Award event, um, 8, 6.30pm at venue to be announced. And then on Monday, um, July the 12th, there's going to be um, a, um, a protest, Defend the Right to Protest, at 9am at the Magistrates Court outside Heidelberg. And then on Friday, Geelong, um, July the 19th, there's going to be a film screening, um, Gaza Fights for Freedom, at 6.30pm at um, the Resistance Centre, Level 5, 407 Swanson Street. And um, then on Saturday, um, July the 17th, um, there's going to be a forum, Global North to South, in Climate Justice and Activism, and that's going to be happening at 2pm at the Library at the Dock, 107 Victoria Harbour Promenade. 
And then there's going to be, on Monday, July the 19th, there's going to be a vigil, um, Eight Years Too Long, Free the Refugees. Um, that's going to be happening at 5.30pm at Lincoln Square in Swanson Street. And then um, finally, on July 25th, there's going to be um, a rally, um, Permanent Visas Not Discrimination, um, Rally for Refugee Rights. And that's going to be happening at 2pm at um, the State Library, 328 Swanson Street in the city. All right. Now, I just want to, um, for just the next few minutes, just want to make, I guess, a few sort of announcements and just a bit of a, um, a kind of plug. Um, just wanted to kind of announce, and this is probably something we could have announced at the start of our program, but um, just for listeners' information, um, Green Left Radio reached its Radiophone target of $1,100. Um, on the other hand, um, FreeCR is still, you know, still f- um, fundraising and still trying to raise money for its um, annual Radiophone. Um, there might have been programs that might have not reached the target and then, there might have been other, there's also other costs that um, we're still trying to raise um, money for. So it is not too late um, to donate. Um, you can call um, to donate at 94198377. You can donate online on freecr.org.au. And yeah, and um, and I think you know um, the um, the Rayafon is um, attempting to raise over two hundred fifty thousand dollars to keep FreeCR on on the air, and every kind of little dollar and little bit kind of helps. And um, more than that, also sort of want to give also a plug to you know. The main part of um, the main aspect of this program, which is Green Left, um, you know, Green Left is also um, relying on supporters as well to keep um, you know our, our Green um, Green Left Radio on the air, um, keeping the um, the publication kind of going week by week, um, which we we release it as a weekly paper that comes out kind of every week, and yeah, you can also become a supporter at greenleft.org.au forward slash support, and yeah, definitely um, recommend um, kind of um, checking that out. Anyway, um, it's um, kind of eight um, ten, so I'm just gonna go play um, a quick um, announcement. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio. Three CR Radiothon show your support during June 2021. So it's up to us, the people. We need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace, a treaty means equality, and a treaty means justice. Thank you. Radio Radiothon, community-powered radio. To donate, call 03-9419-8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM, and I'm just going to go pass it on to Chloe to introduce um, the next guests um, who are very um, appreciative of having on our program today. Thanks, Jacob. Uh, we have Amin 
Afravi speaking to us this morning. Uh, Amin is an activist and refugee speaking from inside Brisbane Immigration Transit Accommodation um, and has been detained there for almost two years. And like many Medivac refugees, it's um, two years of detention here um, in addition to the six years in offshore detention. Amin has been supporting the recent hunger strike, which is happening here in um, Melbourne at the at MITRE, at the Melbourne Immigration Transit Accommodation in Broadmeadows, um, where 14 refugees have been on hunger strike for more than two weeks now. Um, Amin, thank you for joining us on the show this morning. Hi, Chloe. Good morning. Um, thanks for having me. Yeah, we really appreciate you, um, you know, getting up this early. I mean, and, you know, this hunger strike, it just, you know, really shows how desperate and serious the situation is for these refugees. And it's it just, you know, it's continuing to get worse. Um, I mean, can you please just maybe give us an update on how the hunger strikers are doing? I know five of them were taken to hospital and instead of being released, they were just sent back to detention again. Um, would you be able to tell us you know, how they are and maybe also talk about why they decided to go on a hunger strike? Yeah, sure. Uh, the, the problem is uh, it's bigger than just the hunger strike. People are desperate. Uh, to get our their freedom, you know, like including me, we want to be free as a human being. We're born free, and we never commit any crime to be locked up for this much years. Like this is eight years, eight years. We, we are finishing the eight years that uh, we are locked up in a detention for no reason except the benefit of the uh, Australian government. Yeah. So, <clears throat> Sorry, um, go on, I mean. Thank you. So the, the thing is, yeah, they, they have been uh, sent back uh, to the uh, detention <clears throat> instead of uh, they should release them because uh, this hunger strike, it, it keeps going, and uh, I don't think anything will change it yet. And yes, they brought some people back from the hospital, but uh, at the moment that we are talking, uh, still there is uh, probably <clears throat> three guys that they are suffering from different prob- uh, sicknesses. Uh, they still admitted in a hospital and they are in hunger strike. So two of them, they have a, a heart problem, a heart condition. And one of them has an injury in his stomach, which is actually bleeding, internal bleeding he has. And uh, uh, they are hunger struck as well. And they are admitted from, this is probably uh, eight days, maybe eight, nine days that they are uh, admitted in a hospital. So I want to talk about... uh, the the treatment of the hospital and the ambulance as well, which is it is really important because one of those guys who has a, a heart problem, he he has been uh, ignored by uh, the ambulance and they have been calling because he got a chest 
pain. So they called the ambulance for three times. And what's happening is after three hours, the ambulance show up in there to take him to the hospital. And he was emergency. So mm. it's really shameful for IHMS or Australian government to play with the human being's life. And that person could could died in that time because he he's suffering from a really serious heart problem and he was having a really heavy chest pain that night. Oh, thank, thanks, uh, Amin, for, um, you know, letting us know about, you know, how awful this situation is. I just wanted to sort of change um, the conversation around... Um, the uh, International Health and Medical Services, um, you did mention it when we were speaking before on the phone. Um, and just to get, give listeners a bit of context, back in 2016, more than 200 refugees on Manus Island called for a royal commission to fully investigate um, the International Health and Medical Services, or IHMS, um, which is the medical provider to detention centres uh, contracted to the Australian government. And these contracts are worth billions of dollars, um, the IHMS is you know, politically controlled by the Australian Department of Immigration and Border Protection, um, and negligence was revealed by an inquest into the death of 24-year-old um, Hamid um, Kazay, who was a refugee who died in Brisbane in 2014 after being transferred from Manus Island. And you know, we know most medevac refugees have not had the medical attention they came here for, um, and you know, keeping them in these confined, appalling conditions is just exacerbating their symptoms and driving them to, um, you know, go on hunger strikes and risk their lives. I mean, can you? Would you want to talk about the IHMS and how these privately run detention centres are balancing the care of asylum seekers with their, you know, commercial goals? Yeah, sure. Uh, look, uh, Chloe, the problem is uh, for years and years and maybe hundreds or thousands of years, a uh, doctor, knowing as uh, a person who can actually rescue people and save people from sickness or from death. But in this period of Eight years that we are detained and we are controlled by the Australian government and the IHMS. Uh, actually, the IHMS has changed the meaning of what does mean to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. And yet, the Australian government are trying to protect and support the IHMS that they are doing the right thing and they are the best treatment. They are providing the best treatment. I personally can talk about myself that uh, how they are liars and how they are controlled by Australians and how they are having the most impact on our sickness. And they are, I, I believe, they are the main reason why we are sick because whoever is going to talk, they're going to shut him down by mental pills. So they, we are a guinea pig in another way I can say we are the guinea pig and they can test whatever they want and they have the order from Australian government to actually keep us in detention no matter how and how they are keeping people in detention by giving them mental pills to make them numb. Mm. So I can I can say 
couple of things about myself that this is <clears throat> this is uh, probably eight years that I'm uh, uh, suffering from two different skin problems. I have a problem in my nose that I cannot breathe properly, and I have a, I need a surgery. I have a knee problem. I have a back problem. I have another problem that actually my hands and my feet are freezing, and uh, I'm suffering from uh, the uh, two skin problems that I have. Actually, I did prove that to IHMS, to Border Force, and even to the Circle, but the IHMS are not willing to put it in a report. Why? Because they, because this is four years that I have been uh, arguing with them and trying to change their mind to listen to my pain because it's really serious and I have been a kind of in torture and pain every single time that I take a shower because of uh, the chlorine in the water because it's affecting my skin. I'm not sure that is the cause of my skin problems, but it's affecting very well. And I did prove that to the IHMS, and I'm asking them to put it in a, in a writing. They are not willing to put it in writing. They are lying to people verbally every time. And what they done after all this sickness that I have, and I came in here to get a treatment for this sickness, what they done is a couple of months ago, they did write, because I'm actually taking a legal action against uh, my will that I have been captured in a detention. So what they done is they gave the court book for the uh, court a case that I have, they gave them and they told them that I'm actually got, I got all my treatment that I came for and I'm fit to fly to go back to PNG or now. Yeah. So this is one of them. And I'm trying to mention something else. You know, we can say like, you know, few people are liars. We can say like, I don't know, I'm lying. Some others refugees are lying. But you cannot say whoever is in detention, they are lying about IHMS. Yeah. Because you cannot find even one person in, in all the rest of the detentions, all the Australian detentions are actually happy with the treatment that IHMS are providing. I personally spoke with the IHMS manager and I asked her about my treatment, about my surgery. Uh, or my appointment with the ENT about my nose problem. Her response was verbally uh, that, uh, oh, it's really hard in Australia, and it, it has to take like seven or eight years for a person to see the ENT. That's awful. Um, yeah. I mean, I think Jacob wanted Oh, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. I, didn't, I, I thought Jacob was going to ask a, a question. Um, we might have to wrap up um, in the next few minutes, maybe? Yeah, like four minutes. Oh, left. four minutes left. Okay. Um, I did have two more questions um, left, Amin. Um, I guess uh, I just wanted to, you know, mention that, you know, there are like quite a few refugees that were medically transferred here who were actually released into the community and the ones who have been you know, deliberately imprisoned in these onshore detention places like hotel prisons and 
detention centres surrounded by barbed wire like um, where you are and stuck for almost two years um, have been the, the medivac refugees, the refugees who were transferred here to receive emergency medical treatment under the, the medivac bill. And, you know, now these human beings are suffering um, after being brought here for that treatment. And that was clearly highlighted by a number of health professionals. And, you know, many of the illnesses are a result of the conditions they've suffered in offshore detention. Um, and refugee activists like yourself, um, Amin, um, you know, like in the situation you're facing in indefinite detention to a hostage, a hostage situation, Um and, you know, some of the refugees who have been accepted by the U.S. A, uh, still remain imprisoned in detention here. So maybe you could just um, quickly shed light on why this is and why, you know, we use the term hostages. Yeah, sure. Uh, why we use the term of hostages, it's because that's exactly what they are doing to us because... Uh, there is a lot of things that we can prove that we are hostages because nowhere in the world any process of refugee will take eight years. Mm-hmm. This is the first thing. And second thing that there is a lot of guys they have been accepted by America and this is years that they are accepted by America, which is I, I had an interview with another radio uh, channel uh, Ago, and they actually done something like fully uh, investigation about what I said. Uh, and what the Australian government actually responded that that is not the truth. Yeah, that is not the truth because I cannot get any proof against the Australian government because whenever they talk to me, they talk to me verbally. They don't want to put it in writing. And whatever I talk to them, their government, they can put it in writing and they can use it against us. So we, we don't have any evidence because they are not providing us evidence. So what exactly happening is they are keeping people in detention, which is they are accepted by America for years, like one, two, three years that they are accepted by America. Yeah. But what they do is they are keeping them and they are telling them we are waiting for America to take you over. But the reality, one of the guys was smart enough to communicate with America, and he found out that actually from American immigration, I think, uh, they told them that we are waiting for Australia to send you. And it was a shocking answer he got because they told him that everything is ready. Uh, even we brought and bought the blanket, everything for you. And we put it in a, in a house that you have to stay with your uncle. And we are just waiting for Australian government to send you over. And why I'm saying that, and I can prove it again, by saying that there is a, a process of medical check. Those guys who are accepted, they have to go to that process. And when they go to do the medical check, uh, the medical check, it has a six-month time to get expired. All these people that they have been accepted by America, they did the medical check at least three times. Mm. So they will do the medical check, and after six months will get the expired. 
Yeah. And still, yes, they are in the detention. And they're going to do it again after maybe six months or a year. They're going to do it again. Yeah. And then it's going to get expired. And again and again. So... Just a never-ending cycle of, of cruelty. Um, yeah, I mean, sorry, I don't mean yeah. to cut you off, but we um, we do have to wrap up pretty quickly. And, you know, we really want to, you know, thank you for taking the time to speak to us this morning. And, you know, thank you to all those who have been working so hard to fight for the freedom of refugees, whether it's, you know, on the streets or in their workplaces. Um and, you know, there is a, a protest happening outside of Maita in Broadmeadows today at 4.30, so I'd encourage anyone listening, if they're free, to get down there. Um, I mean, did you have any just, um, you know, quick last-minute comments? Like, we'll have to keep it really quick, but did you have any last, you know, sort of comments to make up before we wrap up this interview? Yes, please. Uh, I just wanted to mention to Australian people that uh, whoever doesn't like uh, doesn't like the... Uh, refugees or like the refugees, uh, they have to actually be united and ask for the uh, tax that they are paying to this government for eight years. Because people's taxes, it's actually keeping this government to torture us or to torture innocent people in detention, offshore and onshore. Because when you pay taxes, you are giving them power to actually uh, pay uh, companies such as uh, Circle, IHMS, and etc. Uh, to actually keep going and keep torturing innocent people. I'm sure that if you even don't like the refugees, still you don't want to pay yeah. a government to torture innocent people. Please question your government about the taxpayer. Thank you. Yep. Thank, uh, thank you so much, Amanda. Thank you. Um, we're just... Out of time, we have to go to another pro- um, another program is going to be coming on after this. So, yeah, thank you very much. Thank and you. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Thank you. All right. Um, so we're just getting into the kind of end of the program. Unfortunately, I don't think we actually have time to play the outro. Um, so, yeah, stay tuned for Earth Matters after this. You're listening to Green Left Radio.